every now and again, somebody will come to me and they'll say, hey, um, how did you know that you were called to be a pastor? And I feel really bad for that person because some of what's in that is they're trying to sort out their own sense of calling. Usually when they're asking that, like, you know, am I called to be a pastor sort of thing? And I'm like, yo, I had, when I was your age, I had no idea. I didn't never wanted to be a pastor at all. I actually had a real bad understanding of grace. And I thought because of older men that poured into me while I was in college that I needed to give back to sort of set the record straight with God. Uh, that's not grace, by the way. Um, and so I did college ministry and I train wrecked it and I almost got fired and I sucked. And so I did it again to try to get it right. Uh, and then I applied for seminary and it, I didn't get in and that made me mad. And, and I was in Thailand and I got a phone call in the middle of the night and made a decision to come to Chattanooga, Tennessee. And it was complicated. And then I had six years here where I committed to 10 months in a row. You know, so I'm like, if you want to follow my path, <laughs> it looks like eight more years of you only making one year decision at a time and, and you know, moving across the country. And it's kind of nuts. And I'm sitting here in this moment thinking, I have no idea what's in store for you. And you don't either. And tonight, there, I get this tremendous opportunity to preach out of the Gospel of John, um, something which speaks right at that kind of story in your life. What is God up to in your life? Where is he taking you? What is he doing with you? What is your story supposed to be about? When you're, I'm 40. When you're 40 and you look back, what is the story you're going to tell about what God has done with your life? I, I submit to you that you probably can't imagine it right now, but we're going to try. We're going to try to get there. Um, anybody read Chronicles of Narnia? Is that super? It's 66 years old right now, at least 60-ish years old. I was thinking of one particular book today. Uh, it's, I didn't read it until I was 26, 27. Thank you. Thank you, Tucker. All right. Um, so I didn't read Chronicles of Narnia until uh, I was later in life. I didn't really grow up in the church, and those kinds of books sounded weird to me. Uh, and, um, but I read it in my mid-20s, I guess, um, and I, I still can rem I remember where I was at certain points reading those books. Like the last half of the last battle, I was literally holding my breath. I, I don't think I've ever done that before in a book. I was holding my breath. I remember where I was sitting and what time of day it was as I was like flipping through the pages so excited for where this was going. Um, remarkable series, but one of my favorite moments in the entire series of the Chronicles of Narnia, seven books in all, it, it comes from the horse and his boy, and it's the very end of, the, of a horse and his boy. Um, it's the only one that reads, I'm going to leave that, it's going to fall. It's the only one that reads a little bit like a nighttime story. Like a horse and his boy is this, it's a simple tale and it's the kind of thing that I would like to be like laying in bed and someone read it to me, you know, uh, which is maybe weird when I'm 40, but I would like that. Um, anyway, um, at the very end of that story, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler, but it's your fault because it's 66 years old. Um, so this story is, is about a boy and a girl on the run. This boy is fleeing from slavery and she is fleeing from a forced marriage. And near the end of the story, the boy finds out that this Christ figure, Aslan, this lion, has wounded his friend. And he asks Aslan why he wounded this girl that he loves. You know, you, you, you know the question. I mean, if you haven't verbalized it, I know you've felt it. If you love somebody so much, why are they suffering like this? Kind of thing. And Aslan said, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Why did you do that to her? I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Um, 
I, I don't know what you think about what Jesus does in history. He, he, at one level, he pulls back the curtain on the whole of creation and the very heart of God and the heart of humanity, but in a very real sense, this is true for him. He also only really tells each person their own story. And so for your good and your glory, for the good and the glory of other people that you know in this room and on this planet and, and to the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, my prayer tonight is that you would stop comparing yourself to others and that you'd stop looking over your shoulder at everyone else and that you would realize that God is only telling you your own story and may you follow Jesus with the life that he's given you. That's what we're in for tonight. Let's pray. Father, send your spirit to descend upon us to be present with us in our midst, to, to, to reveal to us from, the, from deep to deep, from the depth of who we are to the depth of who you are. Search us and know us, God. Try us. We're mysteries even to ourselves, and yet there is nothing that we know more of than who we are. It is the very thing you're revealing in us and through us, and, and even in your whole of creation, but, but, but Lord, help us to know ourselves tonight and I pray that for my friends in this room and for me that we would have a sense of our own story and what it is you're saying to us tonight. May the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so open your Bibles up to John chapter 21. In the New Testament, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. They're the first four books are uh, called gospel accounts. Gospel means good news. And there are four books that tell about the good news of God's love for the world, for all of his creation, in Jesus. And so these are really focused on the life of Jesus. And the fourth book's called John, because we think a guy named John probably wrote it. Uh, more about that in tonight's text. But ch- chapter 21 is the last chapter in the book of John. So get there digitally or in paper or something. Um, and we're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to go through some of this text tonight. Um, I think we got a slide for it, Yeah. John 21, 18. There we go. Um, I tell you the truth. So Jesus is talking here. I tell you the truth, and I should say, sorry, I haven't even gotten three words in or something. He's talking to Peter, which will be, be more clear in a minute, but Jesus is talking to Peter, who's one of his close friends, probably the oldest of the disciples uh, with Jesus the whole time. Rowdy guy, brash guy, makes tons of mistakes. Uh, I'll also start the church. Anyway, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Peter. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself you played Call of Duty and didn't go to Boobo Night, and you went wherever you wanted to go. And when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Now, if you're ever doing a Bible study and you stop right there and you go, what do we think Jesus meant? Keep reading. Context clues. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. So Jesus is telling him about his death. And then Jesus said, follow me. Now, maybe you, maybe you uh, wish God would throw you a bone, right? Like, what, what should I major in, God? Should I go to Boobie Night, God? Should I go to Ecuador, God? Uh, what kind of job do I want? People keep asking me what I want to do after college. I don't know. Help me, Lord. Jesus, take the wheel, you know, sort of thing. Who should I date? Am I going to get married? What should I do with my life? Maybe, maybe you can even identify, some of us would be pun intended, mortified to find out. Maybe you even want to know how you're going to die and when. Because, spoiler alert, it's going to happen. And that's what happens here to Peter. Jesus tells him how he will die. 
And if you read the context around John 21, like right before this, um, because we're going to go right to the end of John 21, so right before this, you'll find out that Jesus reconciles Peter to himself. He restores this kind of beautiful relationship with Peter. He gives Peter a beautiful calling and mission for his life. And then he says, truly when you're old, other are going to take you where you don't want to go. Jesus pulls back the curtain for Peter and he shows him the future. And then Jesus brings it right back to the present, which is what he always does. Right? Ever and always, friends, God meets us in the present. Always. The present is the name, in fact, for where your entire life is actually lived. And so, too, with Peter. When Jesus tells Peter about his calling and his future, Jesus lands in the present moment. Here's your future, Peter. So now follow me in the present. Incidentally, when God reveals things like that to you, if God does reveal things that, like that to you, it is always about what your response is to be in the present, always. And you know what Peter does. I know you know what Peter does because it's what we all do. Here's your future, Peter, and here's your calling, Peter, and here's what you should do, Peter, and Peter does exactly what we would all do. He looks over his shoulder. The Lord of all creation just told him what to do with his life. And he prepared him for the end of his life and he gave him instructions on what to do next. Who among us in a culture riddled with anxiety and pressure and unfettered freedom that makes us paralyzed would not love for somebody just to tell us what to do? Peter gets it. And he looks over his shoulder and he says, but what about him? Let's keep reading. Verse 20. Peter turned around and he saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved. The one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? So in a minute, I want to say more about that phrase the disciple Jesus loved. Hold on to that. Um, But for now, do you see the gist? Like Peter looks over his shoulder, and he sees another disciple, and he asks, what about him? And so what you should imagine is is they've had uh, supper on the beach. They had some fish on the beach. Um, They're all fishermen. Incidentally, the character that asked Aslan about the story was also the son of a fisherman. That's interesting sort of tie-in with Lewis there, C.S. Lewis. Um, I I think Lewis had this in mind when he wrote that scene in The Horse and His Boy. Um, In any case, imagine this scene. They'd had dinner on the beach. Jesus and Peter are talking, and it's this incredibly deep conversation. The kind of conversation that if you saw, you would know that that's like a holy, sacred conversation that you probably shouldn't break into. Where Jesus, everybody is is pretty much in agreement upon this, that Peter had denied Jesus three times to his shame, and Jesus is restoring him three times to his glory and his reconciliation. Because Jesus will go as, as far as it takes. He knows exactly what you need and exactly where your shame is, and he wants to move right in there and restore you to himself. And he has this moment with Peter that is super intimate, and he, and he, he not only gives Peter this mission and this calling, all this stuff, his future, he's preparing Peter, all this stuff, and you get this moment, this scene, where apparently the young buck is eavesdropping. John, who's the teenager of this group, the youngest one of the bunch, he, he might be 15, 16, 17 years old. Younger probably than anybody in this room, at the most as old as the youngest person in this room. That's how old the guy who wrote this book is in the time he's telling this story. Okay? He's listening in. Because Pe- Peter looks over his shoulder and sees John, and John can recount this whole conversation. He's been listening in the whole time. You got the scene in your head. Jesus and Peter talking, John's lingering nearby, eavesdropping. You know, Peter looks and John's like doing that sort of thing. You know, that's the, imagine that. Okay, let's look at verse 22. 
So, so Peter says, what about him? And Jesus replies to Peter, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? I don't know what kinds of things you think Jesus says. But if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. And so the rumor spread among the community of believers that this disciple wouldn't die. But that isn't what Jesus said at all. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? This disciple is the one who testifies to these events and has recorded them here. And we know that his account of these things is accurate. And here's how the gospel, according to John, ends. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. And so I want to work backwards a bit through this section of, of text. And if you guys can figure out, Nia, if you can figure out how to kind of leave it on the screen, I guess that'd be great. Um, that last verse first, how cool is that last verse? <laughs> the book of John. Uh, if all the things Jesus ever did are written down, all the libraries in the world couldn't contain all the books that would be written about this sort of stuff, right, whatever. Each account of Jesus' life, this is what this means, each account of Jesus' life is super selective, friends. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are sel- they have to select. They have to. He did too many things for me to tell you the full story. I've got to pick and choose. It, 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 in some ways, we all know what this is like. When you tell me about your, your sophomore year of high school, you don't tell me every day and everything and every name and every activity. You select things which represent the whole. That's a very normal way of telling history. There's a lot of power in a historian's voice because of what they select. I see Jay nodding her head. <laughs> She's studying history. Uh, uh, each gospel you read has a slightly different emphasis because of their selection. Other gospel accounts, for example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have up to three times the amount of miracles listed than John's gospel does. John even does this, he has a strange story. It's the very first, anybody know the first miracle in the book of John? Anybody know? Yeah, he's at a wedding, and what does he do? Yeah, and he turns, he, he makes, listen, this is nerve-wracking for somebody. He's going to make some of you real nervous right now. The wine ran out, and then Jesus made more. We have a sermon on our podcast called Drink to the Glory of God, and I think you should listen to it. Okay, go find it, listen to it. That's what I think about drinking. Um, and and I, I'll frustrate all of you equally in it. Um, but John only picks like seven miracles from the life of Jesus in his whole gospel account. And, and one of them is this one, which isn't even recorded in the other ones. The other guys are talking about people, you know, being raised from the dead and, 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 and lepers getting clean. And, and John's like that one time where he like made water into wine and it seemed like he didn't even want to do it. That was cool. Uh, but, but it's bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. Uh, there's a reason John puts that one in there and leaves the other ones out. It's on purpose. And I can't get into all that tonight, though, though we've talked about it in previous sermons on our podcast. Uh, I think there's one sermon series on the Gospel of John in particular where, where maybe the first whole sermon is about why John wrote John's Gospel, and John tells us why he wrote his Gospel. You don't have to guess. He says, here's why I wrote exactly what I did. Okay, anyway, you can check that stuff out or Google it, or, or really just come talk to me. I'd lo- I would love uh, to sit down and talk to you about why the gospel is written differently. Um, and that would be a blast for me, and I'd be honored to get to do that with you. Okay, listen, there's another interesting thing in this section. So one, that last verse is cool. Um, this one's a little bit more loaded, uh, and, and it only really makes sense in a, in a way if you spend the two or three hours it takes to read the whole gospel of John. It's the same length as, it's shorter than The Irishman, if you watch that on Netflix. Um, that's, what it, that's how long it takes to read the, a really long gospel, okay? Um, but throughout the account, John keeps talking about this unnamed disciple. He keeps saying the disciple Jesus loved, in quotes. 
And it's a really strange title. And when you come here to the very end of the Gospel of John, what you find out is that this guy who Jesus loved is the one who's been writing this whole account of Jesus' life. It's kind of a weird uh, trick um, in, in the gospel. It's a strange way to sort of put yourself into the story. Many Christians have argued that the purpose, maybe why John did this, why did he not name himself? Why did he keep saying the disciple who Jesus loved? It's not like favoritism or something. That's not, that, wasn't, that wasn't what he was thinking. But, but is there a sense in which John was trying to make it easier for you to see yourself in the story? A lot of folks argue that. So there at the Last Supper, which we'll celebrate in a little bit, the Last Supper with, with, his, with the disciple Jesus loved, his head upon the breast of Jesus. But when you don't say the person's name, and given how much you and I wish, even if you don't know it, we wish that God would love us like God says God loves us. That when John says the disciple Jesus loved was laying his head on Jesus' breast, is John trying to make it easier for us to imagine ourselves in that position? Maybe. Maybe, maybe that's what's going on, but here's what I find most interesting about this, uh, this tonight, this section tonight. That disciple Jesus loved is really interesting, and all that tells you here at the very end is, ta-da, John is the guy that wrote this, okay? Here's what I find most interesting tonight. John, the writer of this gospel, was there in this moment at the very end, and he remembers this moment in his life when Jesus told Peter about his death, and Peter looked back at John and asked Jesus about John, and Jesus said, what is it to you? Right? Like, if I want him to remain until I return, what's it to you? He remembers that. It's like it's seared into his memory. And all, all, I, can, all I can think about, because I need to tell you some history here, John, I don't know how old John is. He's old at this point. We, we know that John died somewhere between like 95 and 100. Not, not years old, like, like the 95 and 100 years. Like, he died somewhere in there. And he wrote this probably in the last quarter of his life somewhere. By the time he wrote this, it's very likely that he was the only disciple of Jesus from that original group of 12, and actually the replacement. In the book of Acts, Judas was one of the 12, and he killed himself. There was a replacement named Matthias. But but of, of even those 12 and Judas, John is the only one alive. He's the only one alive. And I can't help but wonder as I read this story if John has some kind of survivor's guilt. As all of his friends, that he experienced something amazing with. Like, I literally last week I heard a story of someone who's 105 years old and was there at Pearl Harbor. There's nobody left to talk to about that, friends. And what does it feel like when, when, when the most radical experiences in the history of the world you shared with your friends and now none of them are around for you to share those with anymore? And so for sure John has to feel something like that with his friends, but the survivor's guilt piece is interesting because almost all of, except for Judas would be the exception, all the other disciples died from martyrdom. They were killed for their faith. Peter ended up dying crucified. It's legend, and we aren't totally sure about this, but the, the legend is that Peter was going to be crucified and he said, I am, unwilling to, I am unworthy to die like my Lord, and so he demanded to be crucified upside down. So that Peter's arms were stretched and he was taken to a place where he didn't want to go and he died too this way. This is, and Jesus said, this is how you're gonna die, Peter. And John is looking at all of his friends and all of them have died horrific deaths for their faith. And John's alive. And so I have this moment as I come to this, 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 this text where I, I imagine Peter, we know, I mean, Peter looking over his shoulder at John saying, what about him? And John looking back in history and wondering why he is the only one left alive. 
And I, and I think this not just because I'm trying to imagine what an 80-year-old or 90-year-old guy is thinking, but because what an interesting way to end your gospel account when you say a rumor spread. Do you see that from the text we saw up, saw up here? Like what Jesus said to Peter is, hey, if I want him to remain until I come again, what's that to you? And John said, but a rumor began to spread amongst the disciples that, 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 that John wouldn't die. And John's looking at this in the face throughout decades of history, and he goes, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say that I would die. He said, what if I don't? Which is different. And oh my goodness, the damage done when we misquote Jesus. Oh my goodness, friends. Personally, in your lives, when you, when you have this sense that God told me, or I just think God thinks or wants me to break up with you, or whatever the ways you use God's name. Uh, careful. Some of the lazy, you guys hear tropes. I don't know if, uh, hopefully this stuff gets mocked quickly and you oust it. But you know, the, the, there's cliches like, um, oh, God only helps those who help themselves. That's one. That's total uh, baloney. This is a safe word. Total baloney. Uh, that is not the case. That's not even close to true. Or some people just get jonesing off of proclaiming the gospel in this way, and it's not good news at all, but it's in the name of good news that God doesn't like you. You're wretched and disgusting, wicked, an evil sinner. But the good news, the good news is that he loves you anyway. Friends, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. You were loved before you sinned. You're loved through it all, and the only reason God is calling you out of it is because he has never stopped loving you. I'm not, I don't think any of us in this room are even close to aware, aware of the depth of the brokenness and the depravity and the sin that exists within us. I am not trying to, to, to um, lighten that load, so to speak. We are wrecking our lives and each other's lives by the ways in which we sin and do not follow Jesus. But God doesn't look down from heaven and go, I don't like you. I don't love you, but if you confess and you repent, then I will. That is not what Jesus said. And there's a, a, enormous damage. I remember reading a book that was absolutely heartbreaking for me. Um, I, I will commend it to you carefully. Um, if you've experienced certain kinds of sexual abuse, I would say be very careful. There's a book called Stumbling Toward Faith. It's this woman's journey um, in, in the midst of a, a home of sexual abuse, trying to find the love of God and discover the love of God. And she remembers sitting in a sermon in a church, and I remember reading this page, weeping and weeping and weeping. She said, I remember sitting in a church the first time that I believed that I could be a Christian, and I heard the pastor say that God doesn't love you, but he could love himself in you. Because you're a vessel. And so we take, we take verses like John the Baptist saying, I must decrease, he must increase. And John the Baptist is not saying that John doesn't matter. He's talking about the role that he's playing in the history of Israel. And so it drives me nuts, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step on some toes big time as I say this. This is not in my notes. Pray for me and everybody else. I really don't like it because of how close to damaging this is at least when, when I hear Christ, young Christians talk a ton about, I just want to be transparent. I just want to get out the way and let God do his thing. God made you because he wants you in the way, friends. Yes, come on. There you go. <laughs> there you, go. <laughs> you know, D listen, D this is, I'm a, I want Jesus' words to come out of my mouth for sure. 
I don't want to give you guys hope in some other kingdom, some other lesson, some other, I don't know, what. I don't want to give you hope in my interpretation of a passage of scripture. God forbid those things. And yet, I am not another person. And nobody will ever preach a sermon just like me. It's going to be the one I preach. That's it. I don't know what to do. I can't, if I'm going to literally get out the way, then I guess somebody else will even just have to come and read the Bible to you because my tone and my posture and the cadence with which I read it is all filtering some of this stuff. Do you understand? You guys, it's common sense, y'all. You get the point, right? I do not read the gospel accounts and find Jesus saying, disciples, get out the way. Be transparent so that I can work. He sends them out. Matter of fact, when they're clamoring for him to be present, he even says, I gotta go so I can set you up to do greater things. He doesn't say, so that I can set myself up to do greater things and take all the credit, but you don't matter. He, says, he even says to his very disciples, these two guys that are being talked about, you're gonna do greater things than I'm doing. Look, I understand, there is a, there's a good instinct somewhere, a lot of times, in this sort of like, God, just go through me, make me transparent, you speak, get me out the way. I, I'm, I'm not all against it. It's just, I've seen so much damage in, in, when that's not intention with the actual good news. That God loves you. And Jesus makes that abundantly clear in history. Not from the sky, but he's gone to the depth of human existence and has proclaimed God's love for us all the way through it. Do you understand? There's so much damage. Some of you are trying to figure out how to love yourself because our culture tells you to do it, but you don't think the Bible tells you that you're supposed to love yourself. And how do I love myself when I think God is disgusted with me? But if I can confess and repent, then his spirit can come in me and God could love God in me, but not me. Do you, you guys understand when I say it like that? Do you see how, how gross that is? But it's so easy to just slip a little bit, or just a sleight of hand with these words. And John's thinking about this kind of thing. And I, I don't know what this did for the community of God's people in history. We have some clue based on um, writings in the early church and things they were speaking against. Potentially this was something that motivated certain heresies, which mean uh, things which are not true, uh, okay, in the name of truth, things which are not true. Um, but John was, was at least lamenting, and I wonder if he was even for his own sense of dignity and, and trying to find himself and the story that God had for him, John was saying, Jesus didn't say I wouldn't die. And I wonder if every single year John gets older, if people are like, Jesus come back sooner. Oh my gosh, John's 80, he can't live that much longer. Jesus must be coming back any day. Because they said he's not gonna, Jesus said he's not gonna die. And John's like, no, 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 he didn't, I didn't say, he didn't say that. And I don't know what that dialogue was like with him, but here at the end of his gospel account, he, he goes back and he says, let's remember actually what Jesus said. And it was a hypothetical and it was to Peter, it wasn't even to me. Jesus said, what if, if, if it's my will that he remain? And so I've, I've got this sense that right at the end of the gospel account, John has this sort of survivor's guilt where he's looking and he's going, why did Jesus leave me alive and not experience what all my brothers experienced? And I wonder if in John's position, he would have gladly traded places because there's a certain kind of suffering that comes from being alone and the only one who can remember. And I wonder if as each disciple died, if this became more and more problematic for John as he remembered this moment where Jesus told Peter some of his story and John some of his. 
But here he is, later in life. And he's looking back and he's imagining each of these guys looking at each other. And this is where things land for me tonight with y'all guys. Peter is given some of his life and his story and he's looking at John wondering why he's not gonna live like John. And John's looking back at his whole life and the story that God actually gave him and he's probably wondering why he didn't live like Peter. And isn't this so much like us? How many of us are looking on Instagram, whatever the social media things that you use, walking through class, gosh, with Valentine's Day coming up, how many of us are doing this? Looking at other people and wondering how our stories compare to theirs. And, and evaluating their stories. I want to share with you a quote. Um, from, we put that Malcolm Gladwell quote up real quick, Nia. Um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's a uh, fun author to read. He has a new book called Talking to Strangers. It's wonderful. I highly recommend it. Um, and in that book, he says this. We think we can easily see into the hearts of others based on the flimsiest of clues. We jump at the chance to judge strangers. We would never do that to ourselves, of course. We are nuanced and complex and enigmatic. But the strangers is easy. Malcolm Gladwell says, if I can convince you of one thing, let it be this. Strangers are not easy. And here's what I know. In in, in all of my years in pastoral ministry, when I have actually gotten into the weeds of somebody's story, there isn't a single person for whom I ever thought it was easy. Not a one. Not the person who looks really good in every picture. Not the person who struggles to look good once in their life. Not the person who comes from money, not the person who comes from poverty, not the person who who has a really great family that supports them, not the person who doesn't even know how to identify family. Not the person who drives a nice car and the person who doesn't have a car, not the person who gets great grades and the person who drops out of school in the first semester like 40% of freshmen around the nation. I've never heard one person's story with a little bit of depth to it and thought, man, that doesn't sound too bad. Not once. I have met people I say this with a little trepidation. I have met people who don't think their story's that hard. And my heart breaks because I go, oh, the things you're gonna discover. I've just never met somebody, friends, who when I got into the weeds of this stuff, I thought, oh man, they're easy. But how easy is it for me to look out at you and think, gosh, that must be so nice. To have your job, to have your friends, to have your looks, to have your body, to have your, your intellect, to have your storytelling ability, to have your sense of humor, to have your support system, to have the ease with which you enter into conversations, to be able to string together hashtags like a genius. Oh my gosh. You know, whatever the things are. I don't know what the things are. But how easy is it for us to look at each other and do what he's saying, that we look at each other I don't know what you guys do to me. I have very few people actually want to be pastors or whatever, right? I didn't even want to be one when I was y'all's age. But I, so I, I'm probably be a bad example. But, but like, it's very likely, well, I actually remember being in high school. I moved around a ton as a kid in high schools. I went to like uh, seven, 12 different schools or something like that through my 12 years of high school, uh, through grade school and high school. And I remember being the new kid everywhere I went. And, and everywhere I went, I remember people assuming based on the way I acted, I'm like a type A, Enneagram one, oldest son, rule following, do-gooder. Like, I've been super stressed the last two days, and it's not actually because of anything that I have to do. It's because of how bad I feel for not being able to do anything really well. 
And I've been stressed because of that. Like internally, I've been in knots, you know, all day. And everywhere I went in school, people would be, I remember people actually saying, this show's way too old for you guys, people actually saying, you must come from like a Brady Bunch family. Uh, and I remember thinking like, I mean, my parents have been married like 11 times. I mean, like, you know, one of my parents was home last night and I had to ask that person to, to be quiet with their partner because I needed to sleep to go to school and I was nine. I remember weed and alcohol being present in, in, in my homes in, in very strange ways. I remember getting, you know, I remember getting threatened and beat up in my house. I remember, my generation had this whole title called Latchkey Kids. I'm a Gen X guy. And so, like, I remember going home in, like, third grade, fourth grade, and my mom, single mom, was out working late at night trying to put food on the table for us. And so I'm putting my brother to bed. Like, I remember those things. I remember going to school and being like, what do you mean Brady Bunch family? You don't know me. You don't know my life. You know how hard it is to be in my shoes? You also don't know how easy it is to be in my shoes. I don't know. Maybe my constitution makes it a little easier for me to be in my shoes than yours would in my shoes. I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be in yours. Just because your parents have never been divorced? Maybe you got it worse. Just because your parents paid for college? Maybe you got it worse. I, I, don't, I don't know. Do you understand? that the, Looking at you, it seems simple. But when you get into the weeds of somebody's story, it's never simple, friends. Strangers are not easy. And there's this moment right here at the end of the Gospel of John that's preaching this to two of these pillar disciples. We're actually told later by Paul that James and John and Peter were the pillars of the church. These are the guys in the very early stages that, that sort of approved and set apart everything it seems like. Like everybody was coming. These were the guys that were friends with him and, and seemed to have a degree of gravitas in their community. And these two guys are looking at each other wondering what, if the other person's life might have been better or something maybe. And, and here's, where this, here's where this lands. Peter and John have very different stories, friends. Peter started the church. He, 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 some, and some of you are going to be a lot more like Peter than like John, okay? Like Peter was like uh, brash and bold and, and made a fool of himself and did brave maybe, but maybe just stupid. And sometimes it worked out, you know? Like he did these crazy cool things, but Peter also had like publicly criticized by the apostle Paul in a way that's recorded in the Bible. So like the very guy who started the church was like, there was this moment of racism where Peter was a racist uh, and he was like hanging out with people and then I think I shared this story recently at the house last I was trying to compare it to the the really great musical with Hugh Jackman what's it called the greatest showman yeah there's a scene in the greatest showman that's a lot like this uh we're like but Peter's like hanging out with a bunch of people who aren't Jews and then the Jews come into town and Peter's like not hanging out with the Jews anymore because he's embarrassed about what his people might think or the Gentiles he's that kind of thing like P Peter had that kind of life where his sin was loud and his righteousness was loud and, and he died and he was like, hang me upside down. You know, it's a super intense life. John was known as this old man who used to end every single gathering by saying, little children, let us love one another. These are very different temperaments. They're very different callings. They're very different, very different callings. And what I want you to see is that Jesus is totally cool there being two very different callings. And when these guys are looking at each other, wondering why they're, how their calling matches up to somebody else's, Jesus doesn't say, let me tell you where you fit in the hierarchy. What Jesus says is, what is that to you? I tell you your own story. 
That's it. And I'm thinking about y'all, and I'm thinking, I, I don't know what kind of pressure y'all are under, uh, but my, uh, in terms of callings in life and directions in life, but my assumption is, is that for many of us, our imaginations are, are like shriveled raisins. They need to be grapes or wine, even better. They need to be wine. That your imaginations, I want to blow up. What kind of life might God have for you? It won't be mine. And it won't be the person sitting next to you. And it won't be the person that you scope out on Instagram all the time. It won't be your heroes that you follow. I I have a number of people that are heroes to me. I am not called to be them. God tells me my story, and, and I can learn all I want to from G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or David Burke. I could, I could learn all I want to from these people, but at the end of the day, if what I'm thinking is I need to be more like them, ooh, hold on. I hear the voice of Jesus saying, what is that to you? I hear down through the ages these kinds of things. You, 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 don't, you don't know what it's like to walk in that person's shoes. You don't know the story I'm, I'm weaving in their life. Don't make them so simple. Don't assume you know all the things. I only tell each person their own story. And my question to you is, what is the story God is telling you about your life? Where might he be calling you in a way that is totally unique? And you, you aren't going to be judged compared to me, friends. It's you, you're not going to be judged compared to me. You have a different calling than I do. Stop looking at me. Stop looking at each other. Jesus' response is quite emphatic. He says, follow him. Whatever path he has set out for you, his answer is the same to every single one of us, and interestingly enough, it's follow him. Fix your eyes right on his booty and walk. And it will be a very different story than the one anyone else in this room will live. I gotta stop. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, in the midst of this sermon series uh, called Encountering Your Son, Encountering Jesus. Um, I am so mindful of this hope for each person to have um, their imagination and their, their knowledge of your son just magnified in their minds and in their hearts. Your son is Lord over all creation and he's sustaining the universe by the word of his power at this very moment. And he made each person in this room with intention and purpose. And because of him, we have confidence that you love each and every one of us and that you can save us even from death because you love us and because that's just who you are. And Lord, would you send your spirit to us now to, to, to help us to believe what is so hard for us to believe is that we matter to you. That our, our stories uniquely matter to you. And that w- what you're doing in each person's life in this room is enough. And they might be exactly where you want them to be. I don't know. I know that, I know that you don't want them where I am. Would you help each of them to know that you draw so near to them and that their stories are to be their own in your kingdom, shared with the whole world, of course, but not another's story. It's theirs. No one else can live their life. You don't even live their life, God. You make others, which is nuts. 
Help us to get a sense of that tonight. And, and as we come to your table, help us to, to be refreshed or, or, or renewed, or maybe for some of us it's even the first time we've thought this way. Help us to discover your posture toward us and your humility that you come under us and lift us up and say things like, I don't even call you servants, I call you friends. Help us to believe that, Lord, to celebrate that, uh, and then to respond to you in song afterwards and to walk out these doors following you in whatever path you have us on. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.